Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is the Journey to Transformation. So we are joined today by Kate Grock, the founder and CEO of the Good Work Foundation. The Good Work Foundation is an organization reimagining education by creating innovative digital learning campuses, responsive programs, and demand-led social enterprises to create an accessible, opportunity-packed world for rural and marginalized communities in South Africa. Originally a teacher for over 20 years, Kate has been at the forefront of changing education, creating a best practice model for better access to education in rural Africa. I was lucky enough to meet Kate and her vision back in 2011 when I visited South Africa and the very rural town of Philippolis. So we wanted to talk to Kate today to learn more about how the Good Work Foundation works, how it's tackling inequalities, and especially against the backdrop of South Africa where colonial and apartheid legacies persist. We're very excited to hear about Kate's transformational journey today. Welcome, Kate. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome. Here you go, Kate. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. (laughs) So, Kate, do you want to give us maybe just a little intro into the Good Work Foundation, how you got here? And, you know, since I met you back in 2011, a lot has changed. Absolutely. I think if you told me in 2011 what we'd be doing today, I probably couldn't have even imagined it. And I think that's been the journey. The journey has sort of guided us. Uh, we had a plan and, and sort of along the way have just tweaked it and done, uh, you know, done the best we can and moved towards what people were asking us to do. So, yeah, so the Good Work Foundation started officially in 2006. Before that, it was sort of responded to whatever communities needed. Like most nonprofits, we started in a space that we fell in love with and did a lot of things, everything from vegetable gardens to pre and post HIV testing, counseling to career guidance. But I'm an educator. I'm a math, science and biology teacher. And I found myself sort of roped in into the local high school. Those are skills, um, especially in rural spaces, that are, are really hard to find those teachers. And I found myself in South Africa, we call our last year of school matric. So I was in the grade 12 class um, teaching math, science and biology in the afternoon. And for me, I think as a young South African, it was the first time that it truly land, the inequalities in our education in this country truly landed for me because I found myself in a classroom in a rural part of the country with the most amazing young people, with full of potential, full of dreams and hope, but just disconnected from the next step. And when I arrived, the pass rate was about 23%. And a couple of years later, we got that to 97%. And I always sort of tease people and say, I'd love to say it's because I'm a brilliant teacher. But I think, you know, it wasn't about just that. It was about showing up for these young people. And I think the biggest change that happened is that we managed to get one or two young people into university or into that next step. And the moment one person does it, it's possible for everyone. And I think that changes everything. You know, we started in Philippolis. We've managed to since then get even more rural. <laughs> we moved to Mpumalanga, which is our northeastern province near the Kruger National Park in South Africa. And it has very similar issues. The original mission, once we sort of realized that we were going to be in education, not doing everything, we sort of honed our focus and decided to, you know, how do we leverage what technology can offer us? So technology is such an interesting thing because if you have it, it can level the playing field. If you don't have it, the distance just gets gets further from people who have opportunities. So we wanted to say we can't get physically the best teachers into every village of South Africa, but can we bring those teachers into every village? And that was the, the mission is how can we use technology to do exactly that? Great. Thanks, Kate, for that overview. And I think it is really amazing just how it went from Philippolis to, you know, even more rural, as you say, which is fascinating. 
I hear from you why you chose education and, and the digital side, but you also do other things sort of like tourism and hospitality and those other areas. How did you decide to pick or go with also that kind of programming? There are government initiatives and corporations here are guided by government to do a lot of community service work and interventions and community programs. But what happens is because they are all based in cities, a lot of that sort of happens in a ring from the center of the city out. And so in a country like South Africa that has so many challenges, we are tapping into the potential and the ability of only like half our young people because the rural kids are not getting connected in. So we made a strategic decision to stay rural. And what we did then was to look at, okay, what are the what are the economies? What are the local economies that are rural that we could partner with? Because yes, you want to train, but you also want to train for young people to enter the work the workplace and for to start their own careers. So we looked at tourism is one obvious one in South Africa. Mining is another. Agriculture and starting to emerge quite strongly in South Africa is the alternative energy space. So those are the kind of things that we started to look at. And so, you know, yes, we're a nonprofit, but we wanted to make sure that we were connected with an economy that one, our young people could step into, but two, created sustainability funding-wise for ourselves. And so looking in Mpumalanga, the main rural economy there is tourism. It's travel and tourism. It always has been. And so our cluster of community of digital centers there is connected very strongly to travel and tourism, which is hospitality and conservation. If we were to, at the moment, we only have the one in the free state, which is Philippolis, but if we were to grow in that space, more than likely it would be in the alternative energy space because there are a lot of solar farms starting, wind, and so we would then create young people who could step into those jobs. Instead of always waiting for young people from the cities to come and do these jobs out in the rural space, we wanted to start to create the young people in the communities and where these projects, these, these economies are. And we've partnered with, in South Africa, the Kruger National Park is a huge tourism draw card, and there's a lot of activities that, that happen around that. And there's also private game reserves that are all connected into that big, it's a huge wilderness area, six million acres of wilderness. And, you know, there's an opportunity there for the young people who are on the, the border of that to actually start to participate in it and become the people who custodian and work in that space. I suppose that GoodWorks Foundation's mission is to keep looking where does technology and skills meet those jobs so that we can be looking at the young people who are 10, 11, 12, what will they be doing in 10 years' time? How can we make sure that they're ready to step into that economy because it's going to change? It's not going to stay the same. The, the real guide for us is to look at the economy where we in, create these digital campuses which allow access to learning for these young people and make sure that the skills and training that are being offered are meeting that economy in 5, 10, 15 years' time. Yeah, I just had a question. You mentioned mining, and I'm wondering if there's a tension between mining as an industry yeah. and your conservation <laughs> work. Definitely. And it is an uncomfortable one because it hasn't been a positive. I mean, while it's made a lot of money for South Africa, it's not a positive sort of future industry that we, we would like to be partnered with. The two connections possibly for our next sort of groupings or clusters of these campuses, the one is agriculture. And although agriculture will always remain a very hands-on Thing. The distribution of agriculture is very digital now. And so those are the kind of things that we would train the young people to start to take part in. And I mean, obviously, alternative energy, I think worldwide is something that is emerging. One of the other questions yeah. I've got is you were talking before about how this sort of origin story is about responding to community needs and just kind of doing whatever. I wonder, do you feel further away from that now that you've landed on these kind of thematic clusters? 
Yeah, I think I think it's living in the abundance of and, as they say, not the tyranny of all. And it's about, in the beginning, absolutely, we just responded and the communities in the free state, it's the, the elders, we would go to them and say, this is the funding we've got, what do we need? But I think as you start to scale, and this is always the issue where we all get to, is like, when we scale, how do we not lose the thing that made us who we are in the beginning? And the thing that made us who we are in the beginning, a couple of things have emerged. The one is that we are quite, and we work really hard at making sure that the youngsters come through the campuses who lead the campuses, come from the communities that they're in. So at the moment, we've got a couple of, of leadership positions where people have come from outside. We're getting to about 70, 80% of our leadership is local to where we are. It's, that's the one thing. The other thing is making sure that we have a community program, which is actually not a, an implementation program. It's just a connection. We have people that are, are connecting in with people all the time. Every campus has its own personality because of where it is, because of who's leading it in a non-profit space, which I think everyone will know, you always have these tensions between donors want to give you money. Do you want to take their money? Mm -hmm. Donors want to give you money. They want you to do a certain thing, but it's not quite your core. Do you follow that space or are you brave enough to say, thanks, but no, I'm not going to take the money? You know, how do you grow without losing why you started. And so my role now in the organization is a lot about telling the story about making sure culture. In fact, my mom, she's the gogo in the organization. So she still works for us. And she, her one and only mission is to keep culture. She has a session called Wisdom Council. And that gets, it's just drip feeding the culture, the stories, the how we do it. With our mission is, you know, to challenge what we learn, how we learn, and the who has access. Yes, the who has access is a real driving force for me, but the how for me is also such an important an important thing. What can I do alongside the school that shifts the agency of learning back to the learner, number one, and make sure that the learner absolutely loves to learn? Peter Diamandis from the Singularity University says, all we have to do is create young people who are addicted to learning. And I 100% believe that. We can get these guys excited to learn and that's about, for me, just switching on, you know, humans are wired to learn. So it's about switching on that love of learning. And we use all the tricks in the book. It's fun. There are drones and robots and Lego and digital devices. So, so learning is really exciting at the campuses. So once you turn that on, you allow the young people to experience all sorts of different aspects of learning. And then the ones that they love, it's about stoking the fire, taking off the lid and never putting the lid back on again. And what you find is once a young person gets good at one thing, it sort of dominoes into everything because you realize, well, three weeks ago, I didn't know how to code. Now this robot is walking around the campus and I coded it. So of course I can do geography. And I think once the agency is back with these young people, I think we have a fighting chance. We are supporting the curriculum. But for me, that's not the outcome. The outcome is to be excited about learning and know that you can learn anything. The young adults are a little different. It's more about bridging into mm -hmm. jobs and, and careers. A lot of it is about creating access by creating these digital spaces. It's about just creating opportunity. Going back to your point on kind of how you decide, so, you know, you, you've now found a model that works, donors are interested, you're scaling up. How do you decide where to put the next hub? I mean, you mentioned, <laughs> you know, putting it in the middle of lots of different schools, but how do you make that decision? And, you know, at some point you're saying no to somebody else while you're saying yes to, to one in a particular area, right? Um, you know, nonprofits is a very competitive space because there's a pool of money that we're all <laughs> applying for. 
And I think there's been a bit of a shift in that. There's been the two two reasons. Number one is we can't all be everything. You know, we have just in our region, we have 80, 850,000 young people that are needing to connect in the world. I mean, we physically can't. So you have to find your partners and then find what is your unique contribution. You know, if there's a, a nonprofit that likes to build the buildings, let them build the buildings and put their logos on. It doesn't matter. Are we there to put logos on buildings? Or are we there because our client is a young person? And for me, our client or the young person in my country. I mean, I want this country to work and by getting the young people into the mission, that's how we do that. And so I think we've seen a big shift. I can feel that. I mean, we're talking to each other much more. You know, during COVID, we all went off our own missions and started to do food support because once the schools were closed and the feeding schemes are closed and, you know, it was not just about not learning. You know, schools are safe places, places for food. And so we all pivoted and, and helped and literally the whole team from four or five different nonprofits all doing the same project. And I think that was really good for us because it forced us to actually realize that we're not in competition. We actually all have got a piece of the puzzle to do. And I think the moment we can get nonprofits who are working in a specific area to be interdependent, to map what we do best and see how does that fit together. So instead of everybody working from one to five, we actually all get to 20 because I think that's been the biggest problem. Everyone's working at the first step where somebody might be really good at that. Then you just build on that and you build on that. And then we're doing it for the right reason. Then we're doing it for the communities and the young people in those communities. I mean, we're both in favor of longer term partnerships. And it's something we talk yeah. about um, when people yeah. say, oh, what should we do? And we say, find a long term partner to help you. Yeah. I'm curious, though, about this. It sounds like what you've got is you've got a long term partner who's creating this sort of pipeline. Right. So from your programming through Kruger National Park and all the kind of affiliated components of that. And I wonder how you ensure that that doesn't narrow the possibilities for young people who maybe don't want to do anything that's affiliated with the power core, want to do something completely different. You're delivering a kind of program. And I love the integrated piece of how not-for-profits can work together because, you know, I appreciate it's a competitive space, but also we can all be smarter about this. So really appreciate that. But I guess, how do you make sure that what you're doing, looking through these pipelines in these partnerships that you're creating, doesn't narrow the potential for young people to do things that are beyond that? Yeah, and I think that's something that we speak quite a lot with about partners, because they like to know what job are people going to go into. And I'm saying, I want to unlock a young person. And those things are two different things. I think for those little ones that are coming in, what we do there is, they call it strewing. You make sure that the young person is having opportunity to explore it's about seeing what the options are, are out there. With the young adults, you know, the, the driving force for young people in a rural space is to get employed and to get going. And so I think there's two, there's two ways we can do that. Is number one is within the bridging year, we do a big section with the young people on career interest profiling. Like actually, who are you and what is your unique contribution to this planet? I don't want to ask a young person in our space, what do you want to do? And they say, I want a job. I want to know that if I speak to you, I say, I want you to be a geologist, or I want to be a few fine art, or I want to do coding. If you go into coding, it must be because that's what you love to do. And it is, it's always a push for young people, the push is to go into into jobs, to start to provide for families and to support young people out in our rural spaces are supporting between between 11 and 14 young people. Every person who's got a job is supporting between 11 or 14 people. And so it's not an easy decision. One of my greatest joys is we've had young people go and study fine art. Now, that is not a normal 
thing in a rural space, because usually you go and study to be a doctor, a lawyer. If you don't got a in front of it, then it's not something that you understand or you want to go and do. And so, you know, we've got kids studying geology and law and fine art. And, and then I think we're starting to win that battle. Because I agree with you. I And I, I mean, you can speak to the team. I don't want 12,000 coders. I need one coder for 12,000 people to use the program. I want to know what are, who are the dancers, who's the poet, who's the person who's going to do the next thing. I mean, one of our young people, she was in grade six, I think. She wrote a book about wanting to be a pilot, and it got published by Stanford. It's got a seed thing that they create. They do books that young people have written, you know, and she then got a bursary on the back of that, and she's at a private school, and off she goes. If you need a job, we've got you to a space where you can step into the career that's sort of mostly in that area. But don't ever stop. If you if you want to learn something different, you now know. You can get online and learn anything you, you possibly want to. So I don't want to create everyone for tourism. It's about unlocking, number one, the potential and the understanding in the kids that that's what I want to be, you know, because otherwise the tendency is a job comes past and I just grab it whether I like it or don't like it. But if you know about something that you love to do, then go and do it. Be brave and go and do it. But there's so many tensions in these things of, you know, opportunity that's now to opening up what I want to do for the rest of my life. There's about immediate job that helps family and supports to actually it's the beginning of a career and I can change that and I can I can carry on or I could love it and carry on down that road. That's fine. But it's our sort of tensions are all at, at all levels of the organization. And I think, you know, in a nonprofit space, maybe it's just so obvious those tensions. But I think when you are bringing technology and things into a rural space, that's immediately a tension. Who's deciding what needs to happen there? You know, we don't want to bring something and stomp it on a place. That's the things have to emerge from the place. So yes, there's certain things we do, but how does that happen? Who are your partners? You know, you've got to follow the food chain back there because you can't be, as you pointed out, we can't be all about conservation and, and tourism and then have a partner that's opposite to that. And it is, it's about, the other thing is we, we'll give you funding, we're going to give you a bit extra, but then will you do this program for us? No, that's not what we do. And I'm curious how you balance that relationship because for somebody who has you know, I don't necessarily think corporations equals, oh, they're terrible. Like having been yeah. in the corporate space, no, no, yeah. I completely understand having worked in um, big programs with public-private partnerships. So working alongside big corporations, I see the role, I see the benefit there. But the tension that I always see in these kinds of relationships is that the corporation, the corporate partner has a kind of a different power dynamic that exists yeah. internally and that they have, they can exert over a not-for-profit. How do you make sure that when you're introducing or working with a corporate partner, I think it's all well and good to say you have to buy into what we believe in, yeah. but now how do you keep them accountable to that? <laughs> because I think that's the, yeah. that's the trick. Absolutely. And it needs to be in both. I think, you know, we spend a lot of time having our corporate partners on site with us to really understand what it is they're buying into. I think that is important. The relationships take conversations. If you want to create a long-term partnership, number one is spend time getting buy-in at the beginning. It's not just, oh, we've got 50,000 around, here's your money, nice knowing you. It's spend that time. We do. We work hard to keep those partners up to speed. We visit them. They visit us. There's a lot that goes on. And then it's about, even sometimes we've gone and said, this is what we, we've hit this wall, help us. And, you know, a, a corporate sponsorship is also not just, a partnership is not just a donation. You've got the opportunity there. You know, I'm a teacher, well, I'm a zoologist and a teacher. I'm now running four companies. <laughs> like I never studied business, 
but I'm partners with people who studied business. So I think it's about being vulnerable and saying, help me. I don't understand how you want me to have all these processes and mail or whatever, and how do I balance that? And we have these conversations with our partners. And I think it's a great wish to have that we're never going to lose culture. And we all, and I know it's something that people talk on some, but we work really hard at it. And I think you have to. And you have to have somebody, well, a few people like myself, you know, like my, my mom, people who are at the beginning of the story, who hold that culture, that it's like a non-negotiable. And I think also that we've got our students coming through us, becoming our staff. So you come through the bridging year. You go into the academies. We have the facilitator academy that creates our future staff for a year. You've had two years of these young people being beneficiaries of what you do before you even start to hire them. So there's an opportunity there to get culture, to get buy-in, and to get all those sort of things. But I think we, you have to you have to fight for it with, with your last breath um, because if culture goes, and you, especially in the community space, if culture goes, you'll lose your connection with your your community. The moment you become too um, process-driven and, and, and those sort of things. But we do it like this because it's a Monday and that's what we do because sometimes you can have a plan and then the whole community has changed overnight and actually there's a big meeting and so that's the plan. And, and you have to, yes, you've got to have your, your focus on what you want to do, but you've got to be open to the gray areas on each side because if you have a change in leadership, if there's a, a crisis in one part of the country, you can't say, no, we're not part of that. You have to not only do your thing in the community, you've got to become part of the community. And I think it's the way, the best way that government can work with private because nonprofits almost provide the subtitles because we, we sort of move between um, those two spaces. Because you can't scale these things without government. You can't. But government is a, a heavy thing to manage and you want to be agile and you want to be able to move and change. Um, and corporate also finds government heavy. You know, so how do we how do we become this triangle that is working actually for the beneficiary, which is the young person, and for the country, the future of the country? Human beings become the energy of where you find them. Right? If you send a young person into a school and you leave them there, they will become the energy of that school. So we rotate them through all the time. So they're coming and getting the energy and the how and the why from GWF, and then with renewed energy, they go back into the into the space. So I think that's you know, as you grow. We're going to have to figure out more ways of doing that. So the bridging and sort of getting young adults into these jobs, how do you consider or who helps them consider the potential for racial discrimination, particularly in the Kruger where, you know, it's a lot of white tourists coming in? How do you sort of support that you're kind of propelling them potentially into a space where they're going to experience racial discrimination? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, in South Africa and the world, I think it's it's everywhere. Um, I think the way there's tough conversations, there's courageous conversations to be having with young people all the time. That, and especially in a tourism space, you know, the other in the IT, in the services space, you have to, you know, you're going to meet people. And, and often when they come to you, it's usually with a problem. People who are happy, happily having their, their holiday are probably not going to come ranting to the desk. So the people that you're going to meet are usually in an aggressive and a frustrated and a whatever space if it's a, if it's a problem. I think you move through that by making sure our young people are clear who they are and have the skills to feel like they're on the front foot. I think it's very hard to, if you go into a space and you don't feel confident and that comes at you, I think it can step young people back a, a lot. But it, 
There's been a lot of transformation in South Africa in the Kruger National Park, who's working there, who managers are, and and it's all it's been for the good. And so you want youngsters to, number one, feel confident in the workplace so that they're on the front foot, but also not to feel like they have to leave behind who they are and where they come they come from, because actually that's their unique selling point in that space. That's the thing that people are actually wanting to hear. Where do you live? Now, I literally live on the edge of the Kruger National Park. I've grown up. I can see elephants from my house. And now I'm a custodian of the space and I'm working in, in the space. I mean, I think there's always going to be people who have a, you know, have a race issue with coming in, but then mostly they shouldn't visit South Africa, please. But, you know, I think for us, while yes, we talk about these kind of things, the biggest thing for us is individually making sure young people know how to handle themselves if that comes up and know that if that is coming up, it's a 100% not about you. And it's, you know, the, it's your opportunity to maybe change somebody's mind, but not to, to move yourself backwards. Yeah. How, how do you approach the, these conversations with the young people? You have your time in classroom, but then there's also these mentorship circles that happen. And there is a program of conversations that we're having, everything from gender-based violence to, to racism to all those kind of things so that young people to help the staff and the students sort of decide what those conversations are going to be. Sometimes those conversations can open up something and then you can't just say, okay, well, that was a nice conversation. Everyone goes home and, just, you know, somebody is now sitting with things that they want to deal with. But we have now a network of social workers, police, eye people, health. If somebody needs that, we can connect them in with the right person. When I think about this tension between in order to interact with the world, it must be in English. In order to be competitive, you must have these digital skills. Know that, accept the reality of that. You're talking about children and young people staying authentically themselves, but everything, but we were centering English and we're centering digital capacity. So tell me more about those challenging conversations, because I'm sure they're they're happening. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is. It's an interesting conversation because we could say, well, we're going to do it in Tonga or Saswati and actually it's focus on that. But we would not be connecting these young people into the opportunities. The, the tourists and things that come speak English, you know, often they're speaking Portuguese or whatever, but English is where everyone meets. In the same way as the organization is growing and wants to keep culture, is how do you grow your access and connection into jobs in the digital marketplace without losing who you are. In our campuses, we have a huge tree and we meet every morning under that tree. And the, the tree is connected to the world and it's got you know USBs and projectors and Wi-Fi and all sorts of things. But yet in Africa, you meet your elders and your teachers and you learn under a tree. We don't want to change that. However, your teachers and your elders could be anywhere in the world now. So that was the idea of the trees, and it stands as a symbol for us that we are African first. And 100% these young people that we have in South Africa, and it's literally one of our favorite weeks in, in the year, is we have Heritage Day. And it's the most beautiful thing because young kids are dressed fully in, in, in their um, cultural clothes, and they're doing their dances. And our team is very good at that when we do sort of talent shows and whatever, it's, that doesn't have to be in English. But you do need to be able to speak English to access learning. That's the reality of, of where we're at. But we celebrate everyone's culture. And I mean, we have about, you know, in South Africa, it's just, there's so many. We're a real melting pot of lots of different people. And within GWF, I think we're at about 10 or 11 different 
sort of traditional cultures that have all merged into one GWF culture. And we celebrate it. You know, it's not it's not something to, to leave at home and come through the door. The whole thing is you, that you bring your whole self to it. You don't bring just a piece of yourself. And so the local languages are spoken to the children if they need more explanation or whatever. But the idea is to really give you the opportunity for both, that you don't, I, I agree, you've got to be careful not to lose one to get the other, but you also don't want to keep one so strongly that you don't access the other. It, it, it is, I mean, it's all of these things, we go back to the tension, it's another one. How do we make sure that as these young people become drone pilots or artists or whatever, that they're bringing, like, don't forget what made you who you are, because that's, if you bring that to the workplace, that's how you'll transform South Africa. If you understand who you are, but you have access into the, the business world, that's how it will transform. You have to be, you have to access that world, but bring your whole self. And I think that's, I don't know if we'll get it right. We try every day and probably we get it wrong sometimes, but it is something that we think about a lot. Do you follow up with anyone who's left and sort of gone out into the world? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do. We follow up a year after, I think we do six months a year and then every year, and we're up to, and we're just carrying on. So we've up to like up between five and ten years in different in different campuses, depending on how long they've been there. You know, so you're starting to see young people move into the work, and and a lot of them are working for working for good work, which is very nice. Interestingly, we're busy working now on an alumni program, which is basically just to stay connected. And those who've got jobs, to keep telling us where they're doing and how they're doing. But those who haven't managed to get jobs yet, to ongoing training, you know, opportunities for short courses and and also, we're a network. We're a network of partners who can be employers. And so more and more, what's happening is our partners are also saying, we need five people to work in the lodge. And then we're sending 10 young people for interviews. And so we're becoming the network that helps get take that next step too. It's actually a useful jumping off point to you speaking about the staff, because one of the things I noticed, you've, you've got this pathway. So you've got Young people who are going through the program, some of them become staff. And one of the things that I noticed on your website is that you've got majority black staff, but majority white mm -hmm. board. And I'm curious yeah. how you think that might impact representation or governance, decision making. Yeah, absolutely. And we're actually in the process of a board transition right now. So our original chairman has stepped down and we've put in place a man called David Lawrence, he was head of a big bank here, and he's extremely strong on governance. So he is our transitional two-year board member, and we are actively recruiting to transform the board. It is absolutely, it has to. So what happened is, you know, it started, and then the organization is, is transformed as best as we can, and starting to be more and more as young people are moving into some of the manager positions too. But it was time now for the board to match the organization, because it didn't. How hard is that? to do? Because we've had this conversation with organizations yeah. where we've said, okay, your board doesn't represent, it doesn't look like anybody, anybody else who works yeah. with you. And for some reason, I feel like that's a, a great response that you've had. We see that it needs to change. We're going to change it. Why does it seem like that comes easy to you, whereas we have had a real no, wrestle I mean, with other organizations to get them to think <laughs> about how their board can better represent either the communities they serve or the people who they work with? And can you give us a, a, a tip that we can pass along? I think 
Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things is it's evolved over time. So because the organization has evolved, in the beginning, Good Road Foundation started, with, it was literally myself and six friends because you needed seven to create it. And then when we decided to get quite specific, I had to ask a whole lot of my friends to please step off. So I've already had to, like, <laughs> you know, ask people to move and it changed. And then we were very strongly linked to the lodges. And so then it became very lodge heavy. And as we started to work with more and more lodges, we had to then move to be more independent. So while the transformation and, you know, we're having a lot of young black women move, moving onto the board, you know, to really start to look at that at that space, we've had some iterations of that board along the way. So I'm not precious. Of, it's definitely not the original board. I think sometimes the original board, if it's been there for a long time, to shift it is, is hard. I think I work really hard to not be the founder CEO that they write books about that are not um, useful humans. And I think so we, we really are trying to look at ourselves. Yes, we got something started. The mission for the last little while is, okay, how do we make ourselves sustainable operationally beyond the people in the room? And now the mission is, how do we make ourselves sustainable financially beyond the people of the room? Because that's how it starts with the connections that you have. And then how do we make sure, governance-wise and board-wise, we actually have people who are looking at the next 10, 15, 20 years? So that's not people who are 70 or so. We now need to start to, to look younger and make sure that we have not only diversity across races and gender, but also age. I think that's a huge one. And I think if we can have elders, those who are sort of in the middle and then youngsters learning from the wisdom of the elders, but bringing the new energy. I think that then you start to have a very interesting board. Now that the board is starting to shift, start to have very different conversations at the board and challenging where we're going. And the board is starting to play the role of what a board should be. So in the beginning, we never had management in the organization. So the board was a little bit in operations and I'd like need help with brochures or I'd need help or whatever. But we're starting to see with management actually, and it's, the wonderful thing is it's actually management within the organization has pushed the board out of operations and the board is now actually playing the role that it should do, which is strategy and just taking out any obstacles in our, in our way to get, you know, to get to where we want to be. And I think we're working all the time. With, you can watch South Africa, we can watch any country in the world. You can put on the news and watch your country and actually just want to get in a, a bed and, and not come out. But every morning, we get up and we go and we meet a, a South Africa that I really want to work with for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Because these are young people. Nobody's disadvantaged. Nobody's in a heap. Nobody's waiting for anything. Everybody is moving forward, taking opportunity and creating worlds for themselves, their families, their community. And I think because the young people have been pushing, we get pushed by one, our beneficiaries, one, our youngsters, but also by the staff is they wanting more and more responsibility and they want to guide this organization. So we need to push that. We need to then get out the way. I think it's more about as a board getting out the way and being called in when you need it. I think that's the... Yeah, that's couldn't the, agree more. But it, maybe yeah. I can make you my ringtone on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Just get out the way. Just get out the exactly. way. And it's, it's, it's not easy, but I, I have been really lucky and we've been we've been very thoughtful about who, the, who we approach. In South Africa, it's hard. There's not a huge pool. Everyone is on every board. And, and I don't want people who haven't got time. Um, you know, so the mission is to be fine. And that's why I think we're, we've been smart is we've actually gone a little bit younger and looking for, for people who will grow into that position. And I think that's the, one of the ways to do it because you won't transform 
a board by getting the same people that are on everyone else's board because you don't have time to do the work. And I think that's the important thing. And, and you know, if we just think about, about it in any organization and nonprofit, there's work to be done at every single layer, you know, and if you don't, you have to take time to do that work because otherwise you become irrelevant very fast, you know, because then you're stuck at what you're doing. And if you're not having conversations and hearing what people want to do and how it needs to change and then being open to change, I think you have to, and it's, it's a, it's a hard one. And, and, you know, the last few years were interesting for me. And I think probably in five years time, we'll look back fondly on this time. It's a bit close for fondly, but, you know, some changes have happened in the organization that have been really, really important and are things that are taking beyond these last few years. And for me, COVID took us all out of operations. And I made a conscious decision in that time to not step back into it. And by doing that, the organization has changed completely and it's beautiful. But it, I think it would have been harder if we hadn't had that break. Because if you're in the busy to then say, okay, I'm moving out. It's like, first of all, our egos don't like that because everyone must need me every day. But also, it, you know, you stop and then it was a conscious decision and it was so just I think for the team, like a breath of fresh air now, I can just, they can fill the space and they have. I mean, it's as simple as that. And then at the same time, I've moved now away from Hazy View. And so it really has been a test of can it run as its own ecosystem? Yes, it can. And for me, I'm reimagining what is my role in this organization now? What do I need to do to make sure this organization is sustainable beyond me? financially, operationally into the future. You know, you want to feel useful, right? And so actually stepping back, letting go, letting go of control is really hard. So just to echo that. Especially when it's the baby. Yeah, right. (laughs) Saying there, twiddling your thumb, saying, what do I do now? They don't need me, sort of. I mean, I think that step and that conscious decision, we're seeing it in all of our discussions. That's the hardest decision to make. So, Yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot here that you're saying, which may be very unique to the combination of people you have around you to be fair because it takes more than one person saying right we need to freshen things up a bit let's shake it up because we see a lot of organizations where people are saying that just nobody wants to do anything about it and i think that there's you know it speaks a little bit to what you were saying before about there are a lot of egos around but for some reason with you with your board with the teams you have around you you're all managing to temper each other enough to know when to step away Unless there's just a unilateral voice saying, all right, everybody get out. We're going to start again. But it no. sounds like everybody's kind <laughs> that of. That would go back to years. Yeah. I mean, it sounds yeah. like everybody's in agreement that things need to be fresh, that yeah, you need I mean, diversity in the board and all that yeah. good stuff, which which is kind of unique to recognize. That well, it's it is. And I'm way. very grateful for that every day. I mean, we have I have the most amazing team, both at, you know, because I sort of sit on both horses, both at the board level and at the organizational level. You know, I'm I'm completely amazed by the team on the ground literally every single day. You know, we start every morning in the circle under the tree and, you know, we actually meditate together. So it's wonderful for me because I know at quarter to eight, no matter where I'm in the world, I know where everybody is in the organization and what they're doing. You know, then they're singing and then we go around and if anyone needs help in, across departments, they can say what they're doing and, and all those sort of things. I said to the team once, you know, what you need to do is you need to be amazed by the people in that circle because the amount of talent and diversity just in that circle at each campus is amazing. And the wonderful thing is if you're amazed by that circle, someone in that circle is amazed by you. And I think that kind of connection that we have every single morning 
it's an interesting team. There's something that goes on at GWF, and I mean, I know I'm biased to it, but there is an energy there that is interesting, and there's nobody who's come to it who hasn't felt it. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. And we've had people come, we've had ma- managers come and leave, and the wonderful thing for me is now this organization is bigger than any individual, including me. And I think that's a huge key, and as you said, it's to do with great management on the ground. There's very few... So I can even count on one hand people who are GWF to do a job. They're everybody 100% believes in the mission. You know, we've got young people who are creating opportunity for young people in their own communities that they never had. You know, and that it takes an interesting person to be able to give other people more than you had. And I think that's part of, of the culture that I will literally to my last breath fight to keep. I <laughs> have really enjoyed having some of these conversations about the tension <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> I am very curious to what extent other organizations, other people, other individuals are thinking about these things because, you know, I, I haven't yet stumbled upon the answer and I, uh, hope yeah. that, I hope that I don't in some ways because the pursuit of the answer is the fun bit for me. But yeah, yeah. just a thanks for me to, you know, for, for your candor and your insights. Um, I really appreciated that. No, I completely agree. And I think it's just really interesting from the context of where you're sitting, Kate, to hear some of those things echo back at us that we're also hearing here and other parts of the world and take some of those tips and lessons from you and hopefully inspire some others to really find that energy that the Good Work Foundation has. Yeah. So yeah, it's been really lovely. Thank you, Kate. Everybody's pursuit has got to be to find their unique contribution to the planet. There's a reason that everybody's different and, and because we, we need everybody to make it work. And I mean, we're seeing that in South Africa, you know, innovation doesn't come from comfort. Innovation comes from necessity. So if you're going to solve the problem, the kids who are having the problems are going to, are going to be the ones who innovate and solve those problems. And if you can give the young people the skills to be able to then implement and do that, you can. Otherwise, you're never, ever going to solve a water crisis if every day you go and open a tap and water comes out. There's no drive to solve it. But a young kid who has to spend time doing that will figure out a better way to to make that happen. But then you have to tap into that innovation. Now, we've got pockets of, of things going on. There are more people on this planet and there's more brain power and we need it. So we have to unlock, you know, the other places. And I think that's a huge thing for me. You know, it can't only be cities, can't only be in in Europe. It's got to be, you know, this planet needs all of us right now because it's, you know, it's not in a happy place. And so how do we, how do we make sure that don't force digital and, you know, technology and everything on ever, but we use it, you know, digital mustn't use us. We've got to use it to make things better and to allow access for everybody. And, and I think, you know, at Good Work Foundation, we're doing a small piece of that to really see how can we use this technology for people, you know, to use as they will. You know, not it's a pen. You know, a computer is a pen. It's not a thing that you have to learn. It becomes just so normal that you pick it up and use it to create or use it to do what you meant to do. Then we'll have done our job. I mean, next you're going to have to jump on the Bitcoin NFTs uh, <laughs> thing, no? <laughs> we'll, we'll see you in the metaverse. We started a little bit on the philanthropy side, but we, it's, it's another whole universe. I yeah. know, I know. Yeah, as Tia said, we'll be in the we'll metaverse see. next time we have this chat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somewhere in the ether. Yeah, yeah right. Great, <laughs> yeah. right, thank yeah, you so cool. much. And we'll put a lot of the information about the Good Work Foundation in our show notes cool. and you can head over to cool www.goodworkfoundation.org to find out more about um, Kate's work and what she's doing there in South Africa. But great. Thank you so much, Kate. Amazing. Thanks, Kate. Um,
Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.